So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, Why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, The Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Thank you, Cheryl. Cheryl Horn, married to Joe, and they're three boys, and they're part of our church family just in the last number of months. So thank you for reading, Cheryl. Well, today we enter into uh, what is referred to as Holy Week. Holy Week. Holy Week uh, in the Christian calendar is the last week of Lent and uh, the week just before Easter Sunday. You know, we have an expression that we commonly use when we bid someone goodbye. We say to them, uh, hey, see you later, and have a great week, and have a great week. In the Eastern Church, they often refer to this the Holy Week with a, a different term. They refer to it as entering into the Great Week. It's the Great Week. It's, it's Holy Week, but they refer to it as the Great Week. And it truly is. So lest I forget at the end of the service, let me say to you now, have a great week. Have a great week. Which is to say... Have a sacred journey in your heart this week as you visit the various stations on the road to the cross. And I hope you will do that. Perhaps this would be a great week to read through the Gospels and to identify those pathways that Jesus traveled. And that's what I would like for us to do this morning, uh, knowing that we can't stop at every juncture. But uh, come walk with me this morning, even if I have to walk rather quickly. And see the road that Jesus traveled. And uh, we'll continue on that road on Good Friday. And then we will celebrate the glory of Easter Sunday a week from today. But come walk with me today. And our first stop is Bethany. As we think about the King of Kings and we think about, first of all, the determined king. The determined king. Since it's Palm Sunday... We need to begin our journey on the eastern rim of Jerusalem in a little place called Bethany. Now, I do recall that years ago, our seminary class of about 20 students visited Bethany, a very rustic village not far from the Mount of Olives and well known for the tomb of Lazarus. It was here that Lazarus was raised to life by Jesus after Lazarus had been dead for four days. And I think what captivated the seminary students was the absolute poverty of the people living near to the tomb of Lazarus. And as many of us recalled so well, a a little home, 
a mom and her children living in the shadow of this tomb, but desperately trying to support her family. And we remember a few chickens running around the, their house, and we remember the kids kind of running around the house as well. And, uh, and they came up to us, and they would say to us, Mr. American Dollar, please, American Dollar. And they were trying to support their family with mom and dad as well. And we could hardly capture the historical context because we were impacted by the poverty of the community there in Bethany. 2,000 years prior to this, Jesus was in this place. And he borrowed a donkey, a young donkey that had never been ridden. And this donkey was brought before Jesus. Garments were placed on the back of this donkey. And as Jesus sat upon this animal and began to ride it into the great city of Jerusalem, the crowds began to gather. There's no mention uh, that the donkey resisted Jesus riding it, although it had never been ridden before. The symbolism is captured in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the people sang part of Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. It's very clear that Jesus is now ready to declare his kingship in this great week that lies before him. And the people of that day understood the difference between riding into Jerusalem on a horse or riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. A king came riding upon a horse when he was intent on war and rode upon a donkey when he wanted to, to come in the name of peace. So Jesus' entry to Jerusalem would communicate very quickly that he was coming as the prince of peace, not as a king who had come to do battle with Roman occupation. He was coming as the prince of peace. It was customary to cover the pathway of someone who was considered worthy of the highest honor. And the palm branch was a symbol of triumph and victory. John's Gospel records that the next day, the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord Hail to the king of Israel. That was Passover. And it's said that over a million visitors would come into the city of Jerusalem during the Passover season. Imagine a million people flowing into the city of Jerusalem, swelling it uh, to its, its great heights. And Jesus loved this city. He loved the city of Jerusalem. You remember how tears welled up in his eyes in the days preceding Palm Sunday? And it was probably on the Mount of Olives that he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate, for I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say, Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm struck 
by his compassion on the city of Jerusalem. I'm struck by the fact that he doesn't rebuke the city. He weeps over the city. I'm sure he weeps over our city as well. He weeps over the broken and the hurting and the marginalized. He weeps over those who are broken in spirit and broken in heart. He weeps over those who are weeping. He is compassionate towards the lost. And he would probably say to us, O Edmonton, O Edmonton, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. I can't help but think of Rwanda today because this week was 20 years since the tragedy where a million people were killed and injured. Can't you see Jesus weeping over the small nation of Rwanda in Africa? Oh, Rwanda, oh, Rwanda. How often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. He was compassionate to Jerusalem. He is compassionate to Edmonton. I couldn't help but think about the part we play in Jesus' tears for a city that needs him. For most of us, we know the southwest part of the city fairly well. We live here. We have driven around this community. We see the explosion of, of homes in this section of our city. And while we are rejoicing that some have come to be part of our community of faith, when you stand back and you look at the big picture, you recognize, but there is so much more. But there is so much more to do. There are hundreds and thousands of people that need the love of God in Southwest alone. And Jesus weeps for them and cares for them. And he would love to gather them and bless them and have them respond in kind to him. So I call our prayer warriors today. I call you to prayer. I call you to look at the fields that are white unto harvest. What can we do? What should we do? We're only at the very beginning of touching our community for Christ. Pray that God would give us open eyes. Pray that God would give us a heart like Jesus. To weep for our community. To pray. And a strategy to find a way to make a kingdom difference. He's giving a, given us a building. And I, I praise God for this building. Not because it's just a place for us. But it's a tool in our community. And our community is using this tool. And we are becoming more and more the hub in our community. So our desire is that, that God would use this building and use us to the maximum to obey his calling. But we serve a determined king. A king who, who wept over Jerusalem. But also a king that went directly to the challenge to enter the city to face the events that would happen in the city that eventually would take him to the cross. And what an awesome Savior and a reminder in our lives today to always leave room in your heart for compassion. Jesus, on his way to his own death, 
has time to weep over Jerusalem. He didn't put his hands on his hips and, and, and look over Jerusalem and shout condemnation. He was compassionate. That was his heart. That was his life. Some of you may well be carrying a grudge for something that's happened in your past. Let it go. Some have been deeply hurt by things that have transpired in your family. Drop it. Let it be a bygone. No more hatred. No more division. I urge you to do so. Some of you will minister to those who can offer nothing in return. I urge you to do it. Someone has said you can tell a lot about a person by the way he or she treats those who can do nothing for you. And I think that's very true. I heard a story of a lady who walked into a grocery store. She just lost her husband of 57 years. And they often went to this little grocery store together and they would shop. And she said, well, I was shopping. He was always secretly buying three yellow roses to surprise me with. He did it all the time. So as I walked into the grocery store, it all felt so different. I was alone. I only wanted to buy a few items. I searched for the perfect steak because my husband likes steaks. But do you just buy one little steak? And as I stood at the meat counter, uh, an attractive lady came up beside me wearing a beautiful green coat. And she took a package of steaks and put them in her cart, in her basket. And then she took them out of her basket and put them back in the meat area again. And her eyes caught and she looked a little embarrassed. My husband and family love T-bone steaks, she said, but I don't know at these prices. I said to her, my husband passed away. Eight days ago. Buy the steaks and cherish every moment. I saw some emotion in her eyes and she put the steaks back in the cart. I went to the milk section to get a small liter of milk. Moments later, I saw this lady headed in my direction with the brightest smile on her face. She seemed radiant. When she got to me, she held out three yellow roses and handed them to me. These are for you. And she bent over and gave me a kiss on the cheek. I wanted to tell her how grateful I was. I wanted to tell her, that's what my husband always did. But I was unable to speak. I looked down at those three yellow roses, and I knew she couldn't have known. But God knew. And he was leading me forward. He was leading me on. He was saying, you can make it. You can go from here. A moment of compassion reminded me of God's care. But what an awesome Savior. And a reminder for us today to always leave some room in your life for compassion. Jesus, on his way to his own death, had time to weep over Jerusalem. Then I want you to see the praying king. Would you walk with me quickly to the next station? We pass the stations where Judas washes the feet of his men in the upper room. We looked at that two Sundays ago. 
We passed the station of betrayal by Judas. We spoke of that last week. But we stop at Luke chapter 23 and verse 3, and it's a picture of a sieve. Do you know what a sieve is, farmers? Well, a sieve is a, as a small, on a small scale, is a little container that's able to separate the chaff from the grain. And on a large scale, that's a sieve on a smaller scale. And on a larger scale, it's something like this huge combine that while traveling four or five miles an hour can separate the straw and the chaff and the grain because it has a giant sieve in it or more than one sieve. And what impresses me about Jesus is that he, while he's dealing with all of this stuff that is coming his way, he's still mentoring. He is still protecting. He is still shepherding his men. He's not checked out. He's very concerned about them. And he has the courage to speak the truth into their lives. So listen to these words. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like weak. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. In the midst of uh, this darkest night, Jesus looks at Peter. But he calls him Simon, perhaps to remind him of his humanness. He calls him Simon. And he says some very startling words. Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. He wants to put each of you through the sieve. It actually reads like this. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Or even more poignantly, Simon, Satan has asked for you. Satan has asked for you. You know, I live most of my day thinking about the reality of the physical world. Uh, driving, eating food, working at my desk, talking to people, running errands, just like you. But then I read a passage like this, and it reminds me that there is so much more that's going on every day, every day in the spiritual world. Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. He's asked for you. Doesn't it immediately bring to mind that Satan made a request to God to afflict Job? Remember the story? Now Satan is asking for the entire group of disciples. I mean, he wants to sift them all, and his strategy is to go for the leader first. He knows the future front man. It's going to be Peter. And Satan is asking for Peter. That's a real challenge to know that you're on the hit list from Satan and yet not live in the fear of heaviness and his desire to have you. But Satan does not seem to come with a frontal attack. Typically he comes in a sly way, a sly way, like a snake. That's significant because it tends to make us think, Ah, oh, we can handle him. 
We think we can keep him down. We think we can control the limits to which he goes. So far, no further. We think we can keep the upper hand. Have you found that to be true? That when temptation comes to you, you think, well, you know, I can handle this. It's a piece of cake. I can go so far. I know when to stop. I don't need to go beyond that. This is not something intimidating or frightening or fearful. This is nothing that should scare the living daylights out of me. Oh, no, it's much more subtle than that. This is something I can handle. Do you ever feel that? This is something I can handle. I heard a pastor by the name of Charles Price out of People's Church in Toronto make this statement. He said, I talked to somebody not too long ago who had committed adultery. And he was full of remorse. He was full of tears. He said, I would have never believed it would go like this. I never believed it would go this far. So he said, I said the obvious thing. What did you believe? He said, well, I believed I was in control. That's exactly what the devil would have you believe. You can go so far. It doesn't frighten you. It doesn't intimidate you because you're in control. Peter thought he was in control. Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you, even to die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. Aren't you glad that when Satan sneaks about as a cunning adversary, that Jesus steps in as the intercessor? Aren't you glad that when Satan wants to destroy you, Jesus wants to preserve you and use you. Jesus knows when Peter, what Peter will do in the hours ahead. And even though he will stumble, Jesus says, when you have turned back, when you have turned back, then you strengthen your brothers. Peter, when you are restored and have the power of God in your life, then be on the lookout for your brothers. For the other disciples who are overwhelmed by the severity of the testing that they're going through. And help them be strong again in their faith and in their loyalty towards Christ. Wow. The Lord gives tremendous insight to Peter. So that he could grasp what the Savior was saying. When you are restored. That's amazing. Jesus could see it. All unfolding. And he said, I'm praying for you. You will stumble and fall, but you will be restored. And God will use all of this to help you be the leader that he has intended for you to be. Now here's a reminder from scripture. A warning, if you like. That we can easily turn our backs on Jesus when we're under pressure. Peter did. But listen... Peter learned a lot from that experience. No doubt all of us have had times when we've had a chance to identify with Jesus, but we've remained silent, maybe gone even further and denied him, stepped back from the situation, because we did not know what was coming down the street. We did not know if we were willing to pay the price. Remember, Jesus didn't say, Peter, you are no longer qualified to lead. You are done. Peter was broken. He was repentant. 
And he came back. You know the story. And the tradition is that he was asked, he asked to be crucified upside down at his execution. Why? Because he felt unworthy to die in the same way that his master had died. I mean, what if we put our own names in here? Ken? Norb? Brad? Put your name there. Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. I mean, if we thought about that for a split second, really thought about that and the implications of that, it would cause us to lift our heads up from the pace of life in which we call the real world to a new awareness of the spiritual world. You will not know the tactic of the enemy. You will not know the tactic the enemy will use. It may be the weakest area of your life. It may be the area of your life that you feel most confident in. Maybe feel overconfident. It may be an area that you never, ever think of. And so on this quick walk to the cross, pay attention to the same area that Jesus drew Peter's attention to, the request of the enemy. And give thanks that our Savior pleads in prayer for us. And remember to pray for one another because we all stand in need of the protection of God in our spiritual journeys. And remember we do not need to stay down after a stumble. We do not need to stay down. There was a gentleman who lost his wife in a car accident. And the task fell to him to raise their children alone. He said, I saw a sign in a park that describes me. It was posted in an area where new grass had been planted. It said, not ready for use, healing. And someone said to him, no way, no way, that's not you. That's grass. When you are healed, if, that's ever, if that ever takes place, you will be less ready for use. While you are still healing, you can reach out to those who are experiencing grief and loss. Like nobody else. In the kingdom, our own brokenness and humanity become a great resource. So don't stay down for the count. Get up, find restoration, and make your life as productive as you can in the grace of God. So we have, a, we have a determined king, and we have a praying king. And may I once again invite you to walk with me quickly to the final station before we arrive at Good Friday. And our journey takes us now to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a beautiful place to visit even today on the eastern shores of the Kidron Valley overlooking the beautiful city of Jerusalem, the suffering king. The key verse is verse 41. He walked away about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Soon after entering uh, this garden area filled with olive trees, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked his disciples to pray. Luke doesn't mention uh, Satan specifically, but the illusions are clear. 
He told his men to pray specifically for deliverance from temptation. No doubt to counter Satan's sifting. His urging them to be on guard suggests that he was also feeling the great battle. You know that at the beginning of his ministry, Satan had tempted Jesus to abandon the ministry, the mission, to take a shortcut to glory. Here in the garden, Jesus struggled with the desire to abort the mission. He referred to it as the cup. His temptation could have uh, have been to reject the injustice of bearing God's wrath for the sins of the whole world. After all, he didn't have to do that. He could have said, everyone for themselves, bear your own sins. But he loved us, and he knew the mission, and he was obedient to the Father. But yes, at at great cost, at great cost in the garden itself. And the Bible says that an angel ministered to him and strengthened him. An angel came and ministered to him and strengthened him. But he continued to pray with such agony of heart that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. What a battle. Max Lucado says it well. His humanity begged to be delivered from what his divinity could see. Jesus the carpenter implores, can't there be another way? Did he know the answer before he asked the question? Did his human heart hope his heavenly father had found another way? We don't know. But we do know he asked to get out. We do know he begged for an exit. We do know there was a time when if he could have, he would have turned his back on the whole mess and gone away. But he couldn't. He couldn't because he saw you right there in the middle of a world which isn't fair. He saw you cast into a river of life you didn't request. He saw you betrayed by those you love. He saw you with a body which gets sick and a heart which grows weak. And he wanted you to know that he's been there too. He knows what it's like to be plotted against. He knows what it's like to smell the stench of Satan. And perhaps most of all, he knows what it's like to beg God to change his mind and to hear God say so gently but firmly, no, no, end of quote. Some of you here today may be in your darkest Gethsemane. And like Jesus, you need someone to pray with you. Like Jesus did, he needed his men to come alongside in prayer and he found them sleeping I'm sure the disciples had the greatest regrets about this evening when they looked back years later and they told the stories. We missed it. We weren't really there for his Gethsemane. And we will probably all live to see the day when we need a few others to help us through our own Gethsemane. And this passage reminds us to be discerning and sensitive to those right around us who desperately need us now to kneel before them in their Gethsemane and put our arms around them and strengthen them. Friday we uh, laid to rest Terry and and Jason and Marvin's mother uh, who passed away uh, on Monday, 76 years of age. And uh, we're so glad that she knows Jesus. 
She's home with Jesus. And then yesterday, uh, we learned that uh, uh, Patty Kern, uh, Patty Kaufelt, as we used to know her in Ironpire in the first church where we served, Patty's, uh, Patty's mom passed away when Patty was only 12, and her dad remarried, and uh, Rhea, second wife, passed away uh, just yesterday. Diagnosed with cancer a, a week ago, one week ago, and then gone. But she knew the Lord, and she's home with Him. And I say this in advance, that in whatever state you have come today, broken in heart, scarred from a stumble, startled by news that has come your way, you can kneel here at the altar this morning find an arm around your shoulder to help you through that hard part of your journey. You're always welcome to come and to pray, and I hope you always know that, and to have others join in prayer. So I want to give just an invitation for you to say yes to Christ today. Uh, Let's have a moment of silence, if we could. Maybe you just want to bow your head uh, with me. Nobody's going to single you out or embarrass you in any way. We would never do that. Or maybe you're not sure you'd go to heaven if you died. Maybe you're not sure if you really belong to Jesus. Would you pray something like this in your heart? Jesus Christ, I'm not sure if I'm your child or not. I'm not really even sure if if I'm saved. I'm asking you to come into my life today. And I'm putting my total trust in you. And I want to follow you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. Help me to understand it all more. If you've never said yes to Christ, I just invite you this morning to say, Yes, Lord, uh, come into my life. Maybe others of you have drifted away from Christ. And God wants to say to you with deep love, I, I will draw you back. I will draw you back. Would you say, Jesus Christ, I'm coming home this morning. I want to get it in gear again. I want to quit playing games and put first things first in my life. Would you make that decision in your heart this morning? Some of you have not found a church home. TCC would love to be your spiritual family. We welcome you here. This is a place for imperfect people. The purpose of our church is twofold. To teach people how to live and to prepare people for when they die. And those are two things you need. We all need. We'd love to have you here. Finally, I'm sure some of you are barely hanging on. You've been discouraged, depressed, despondent. The pressure and stress has been building up this past week or this past month. And you feel overwhelmed. God brought you here this morning so he could say to you, Give it all to me. Let go and let me work in your life. Would you say, Jesus Christ, I want to give to you the problems that I'm facing. I want to give you all my life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Fill me with your hope. Fill me with your presence. And fill me with your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.